This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. On June 16, 1566, Mary, Queen of Scots, gave birth to a son, James. And on that day, she proudly proclaimed that this young prince would one day unite the kingdoms of England and Scotland. And it turns out she was right. By 1589, that baby had grown to become King James of Scotland. And at age 23, he knew that in order to reinforce his monarchy, he would need to marry the right woman. James's chosen bride was the 14-year-old Anne of Denmark, and by combining their kingdoms, he knew he could secure power for himself in Central Europe. In August of that year, Anne set sail to Scotland to meet her future husband. But fierce storms capsized one of the ships in her fleet and nearly sank Anne's vessel as well. They were forced to anchor off the coast of Norway and continue to Oslo by land. In September, King James was surprised to see Lord Dingwall, who told him he'd encountered Anne's fleet out in the ocean, only to be separated by an enormous storm. James was understandably concerned, and he asked his people to pray for Anne's safe return. He asked the 5th Earl of Bothwell to prep a fleet to go fetch Anne, but the Earl informed him that such a journey would be too costly for his kingdom. But King James wouldn't take no for an answer and he set about raising the funds for the voyage himself. James and Anne were married in Oslo that November. It was the proverbial whirlwind romance. The two of them journeyed from Oslo to Copenhagen and Elsinore. It was during this time that King James learned of Denmark's fervent belief in witches and black magic. At the time, the Danish monarchy had begun an investigation into the cause of the storm that sent Anne's fleet astray. The Danish Minister of Finance was accused of not properly equipping the fleet for the trip, and he in turn defended himself by blaming a local witch named Karen the Weaver for unleashing demons that caused the storm. Danish authorities arrested Karen and subjected her to brutal torture in order to get her to confess. Eventually, she gave up the names of her co-conspirators in her alleged plot to sink Anne's fleet of ships. One of these women was named Anna Coldings, And after she was tortured, she also gave up a lengthy list of names of other fellow witches who plotted against the monarchy. Anne's reputation as a witch grew, earning her the nickname the Devil's Mother. She would eventually be burned at the stake. King James was disturbed by the methods used during these witch trials, but was equally as disturbed by the possibility that there might be witches plotting evil deeds back in his home country. In order to combat this problem, he set up his own witch tribunals back in Scotland. Around this time, back in Trenant, Scotland, there lived a woman named Gillis Duncan, who worked as a servant for a man named David Seaton. Seaton began to notice some strange things about Gillis. For one thing, it appeared she had the ability to heal herself far more quickly than anyone else could. For another, she began sneaking out at night, 
and when Seton confronted her about where she was going, she refused to explain. All that was good enough for Seton, who in order to get a confession out of her, jammed Gillis Duncan's hand into a device called the Pillywinks. The Pillywinks are thumbscrews that slowly crush the bones of the hand. When the thumbscrews failed to secure a confession from the girl, he next turned to another form of torture called wrenching, which involved tying a rope around the victim's skull, then pulling it tight enough to fracture bones. But it wasn't the torture that finally caused her to confess. Gillis Duncan only confessed to being a witch when David Seaton began searching her body for a mole or imperfection that was commonly known as a witch's mark. What was believed at the time to be a sure sign that the devil had left an impression on his minion. It was the first recorded incident of a Scottish witch confessing to be in league with the devil. During her confession, Gillis Duncan named several other witches living in Scotland, who in turn named many others. In total, more than a hundred witchcraft accusations sprung out of Gillis Duncan's confession. Among the accused were a respected midwife named Agnes Sampson. They dragged Agnes Sampson before King James, during which time she professed her innocence. In order to keep her from spouting any more evil lies, they strapped a bridle over her head, a metal device with large prongs that kept the tongue fastened to the bottom of the mouth. Then they tossed her in a prison cell where she was constantly deprived of sleep and periodically jerked around the room with a tight rope knotted around her head. When she couldn't bear the pain anymore, she finally confessed to all 53 indictments against her. She told the court that she was part of a coven of 200 other witches who were all part of a massive conspiracy against the kingdoms of Scotland and Denmark. It was shocking news. Up until the time Agnes gave her final confession... King James swore he'd been unsure of her guilt. In that final confession, Agnes revealed that the devil himself had appeared to her, and that he had showed her a picture of James, telling her that the Earl of Bothwell, the man who had refused to go after Anne, was plotting against the king. Another man named Richie Graham later confessed that he had been in on the plot with the Earl, and that they had used black magic to raise the storms that overtook Anne's ships. Bothwell was placed under arrest. Agnes Sampson was executed by garroting. After she was dead, they burned her body for good measure. Gillis Duncan would rot in prison for another year before she too was put to death. With a seeming small army of witches conspiring against him, in 1563, King James passed the Scottish Witchcraft Act, which made the act of witchcraft in conspiring with witches a capital offense. That law, in one form or another, would remain on the books until well into the 20th century, and would continue to be used against accused witches for just as long. I'm Nate Hale, and I've just been named the new Defense Against the Dark Arts instructor at Hogwarts, and this is The Conspirators. Between 1560 and 1707, the Scottish Witchcraft Act was used to try and to murder as many as 4,000 people, most of them women. Prior to the reign of King James, the primary textbook on how to deal with witches was the Malleus Maleficarum, 
also known as the Hammer of Witches, which was written in 1487 by a Catholic clergyman named Heinrich Kramer. Because it was commonly believed that the church was firmly behind the Malleus Maleficarum, it made it easier for witch hysteria to spread throughout Europe. But King James considered himself to be a scholarly and practical man, and he decided that witch hunting needed to be approached in a more scholarly and practical manner. So in 1597, he wrote his own book about witch hunting called Demonology. It is the only book written by a reigning monarch on the subject of witchcraft. Given that the book quite literally had a royal seal of approval, for many years, demonology was regarded as the official handbook on how to deal with witches. In fact, that book would prove useful to William Shakespeare in providing background material when he wrote Macbeth. Among other things, demonology contained detailed instructions on one particular famous test called Swimming the Witch, in which the accused witch would be tied up and dumped into a body of water. If the witch floated, then they were obviously in league with the devil and would be retrieved from the water and either burned alive or hanged. If the accused drowned, well, at least that proved they weren't a witch. In 1603, after becoming King James I of England, he broadened the power of the Witchcraft Act to include anyone who attempted to invoke evil spirits or communicate with ghosts. Sometime later, he changed the law even further, making the act of witchcraft into a felony allowing these cases to be tried in a normal court of law. Burning at the stake was banned, leaving hanging by the neck to become the standard method of witch execution. Although the courts were allowed some leniency in these matters, first offenses for witchcraft were typically punished with a year in prison, with secondary offenses leading to the hangman's noose. Despite having written the official guidebook about witches, King James remained skeptical of them. More often than not, he found most magicians to be simple charlatans with a bag full of cheap illusions. In 1605, a man named Brian Gunter brought his daughter Anne before the king and accused her of being bewitched. As proof, Gunter claimed that Anne had become prone to violent fits, in which her body would contort in unnatural ways, and that she would sometimes cough up pins out of her mouth. But Gunter misread the king. Rather than immediately arrest the people Gunter said had bewitched his daughter, he instead had the archbishop examine the girl, who then determined that the entire incident was a hoax. It turned out that Gunter had been attempting to get the king to arrest some people with whom he had a simple grudge. Gunter was fined and jailed for wasting the king's time. In March 1612, in the town of Pendleton, a girl named Alison Device cursed a peddler who refused to give her some pins she asked for. Soon after, the peddler collapsed, and the man's son reported the incident to the local magistrate. Alison came from a family of local healers who used herbs and magic to cure illness. So everyone, including Alison herself, believed that it had been her curse that caused the man to collapse. But Allison's confession to the magistrate only further convinced the locals that the girl was the devil's minion. She said that a demonic black dog had appeared to her, and that she had asked the hellhound for its assistance in cursing the peddler. Allison also accused her grandmother and two neighbors of being witches as well. 
Once those three were arrested and jailed, they soon gave up the names of eight others who said they were part of their coven. By the time the trial occurred, 19 people stood accused of witchcraft. There would have been 20, but Allison's grandmother died in jail. Allison was racked with guilt and didn't even try to defend herself. She was quickly convicted. But the other defendants, including Allison's mother Elizabeth, steadfastly denied they were witches. But the magistrate had a secret weapon against them. Nine-year-old Jeanette DeVice, Allison's little sister. Jeanette told the court that her mother and the others were all witches, and the court believed her. Normally the testimony of a child would not be allowed in an English trial, but King James's book Demonology advocated for it. So the little girl's testimony was allowed and given serious weight in the court's deliberations. It's difficult to say what drove Jeanette DeVice to testify against her own family, but in the end the girl's mother, young brother, and sister were all hanged to death, along with seven others. History doesn't say for certain what happened to Jeanette DeVice after the trial, although records exist of another witch trial 22 years later, in which a woman named Jeanette DeVice was herself convicted and put to death. The trial of the Pendle Witches was everything that King James had claimed to be against, a trial based entirely on hearsay accusations. But the publication of his book had opened the door for centuries of witch trials and witch hysteria. People like Matthew Hopkins, the self-appointed witchfinder general, whom I spoke about in an earlier episode, would take the book as the king's tacit approval to persecute hundreds of people on no evidence. About two decades after King James's death, the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland pushed for further broadening of the Witchcraft Act. Additional capital offenses were added that included the worshipping of false gods and other acts such as people who beat and cursed at their parents. By 1735, the law was revised again, repealing all previous acts and replacing capital punishment with fines and jail time for acts of witchcraft. That version of the law would remain on the books until 1951. The last woman ever tried under the Witchcraft Act was an alleged psychic medium named Helen Duncan in 1944. Helen Duncan was born in Scotland in 1898. She married at age 20, and by the 1930s and 40s, she claimed that she had developed psychic powers at an early age. When Helen was a child, she caused a minor stir in her village when a local man went missing, and she was able to accurately predict that he had gotten lost in a snowdrift. By the time Helen reached adulthood, spiritualism was all the rage, and a person with the right talents could make some decent money. She met her husband, Henry, in 1916, although she claimed she'd already met him on a spiritual level millennia before. The couple struggled to make a living after they were married. Helen got a grueling job working in a bleach factory. It was terrible work, and she knew she needed to find a more glamorous and profitable way to make a living. Helen began traveling the English countryside, performing seances and psychic readings in private homes and spiritualist churches. A typical one of Helen's seances would be conducted in a darkened room lit only by a single red bulb. Helen would then enter the room wearing a black robe and almost immediately fall into a trance. From there, Helen would summon the spirits of her audience's loved ones. One man claimed that the spirit of his deceased wife appeared to him during one of Helen's seances, 
and actually plucked the wedding ring from his finger and placed it on the hand of another woman in attendance. He later married her. Helen even claimed that she was able to summon the spirits of dead pets. Once, famously, she allegedly summoned the spirit of one grieving pet owner's beloved dead parrot. She became famous for her ability to conjure ectoplasm during these seances. Ectoplasm is a slimy white substance that is said to be a manifestation from the spirit realm. During her seances, Helen was seen and even photographed on many occasions emitting long streams of ectoplasm from her mouth. The problem was that all of Helen Duncan's mystical powers appeared to be a complete fraud. It turns out the ectoplasm she regurgitated was nothing more than a mixture of paper, cloth, egg whites, and surgical gauze. You can actually see the creases and hard edges on the cloth coming from her mouth in some of the photographs. Late in his own life, Helen's husband admitted he had seen his wife swallowing her ectoplasmic concoction before a seance. During her seances, Helen was also known to work with supposed spirit guides. One of these was a little girl named Peggy. But in 1933, during a sitting in Edinburgh, a policewoman grabbed Peggy as she floated by, revealing herself to be some torn fabric draped over a cheap doll's head, hanging from a string. Helen was arrested and charged with fraud. She was fined 10 pounds, and within a couple months she was back on the seance circuit. Helen came to the attention of Harry Price, the founder of the National Laboratory of Psychical Research. Price's organization had actually exposed many fraudulent mediums, although on rare occasions they came across a few individuals they believed might actually have psychic abilities. Helen wasn't one of those. It was Harry Price who actually obtained a sample of Helen's ectoplasm and sent it to a chemist, who identified the substance for what it really was. To further prove what a fraud she was, Price paid her 50 pounds to allow him to perform a series of test seances with her. But she balked and attempted to flee from the room when he attempted to x-ray her to see if she had swallowed any of her ectoplasm mixture beforehand. Helen's husband tried calming her and telling her the x-rays were painless when they wheeled the machine up to her, which caused her to punch her husband in the face, then tried to punch the doctor behind the machine before running out into the street. By the time they got her calmed down and back inside, she finally agreed to be x-rayed. The doctors were suspicious about this sudden turnaround, so they asked Mr. Duncan to turn out his pockets for any incriminating materials he might have on him, but he refused. The scientists were convinced of Helen's trickery at this point, and played along as she regurgitated up another glob of ectoplasm on command. This batch proved to be nothing more than a gloopy mixture of egg white and paper. Once the scientists published a paper on Helen's fraud, the Duncan's former maid came forward and admitted to aiding the couple in some of their tricks. After World War II broke out, Helen's seances caught the attention of the British military. In November 1941, Helen announced during a sitting that the spirit of a deceased sailor had told her about the sinking of a British naval vessel, the HMS Barham. The ship was sunk after being struck by three torpedoes from a German submarine, more than 800 men died. This caught the Navy's attention because, up until that point, the sinking of the Barham was classified information that was not made public knowledge until a few months later. There's even a story that says the British government wanted to keep the sinking so secret that they even went so far as to forge Christmas cards from the deceased sailors. 
MI5, the British intelligence agency, was alerted about this alleged psychic who appeared to have classified knowledge and began investigating her. Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. A couple Navy lieutenants were among the audience at one of Helen's seances in January 1944. The Navy men were disgusted with such a brazen fraud as Helen. At one point, a white-clothed figure appeared from behind a curtain claiming to be the spirit of a deceased aunt of one of the men. Only the man didn't have an aunt, deceased or alive. Later, when a figure appeared claiming to be the other lieutenant's deceased sister, the man proclaimed that his sister was alive and well. The two men left angry and reported Helen to the police. On January 19th, an undercover policeman showed up at another of Helen's seances and proved that a white-shrouded spirit that appeared was none other than Helen herself under a bedsheet. The policeman arrested Helen once more. But despite Helen's obvious trickery, there was still the question of how she could have known about the sinking of the HMS Barham. Well, as it turns out, although the ship's sinking was supposed to be an official secret, there were many people who knew about it including the hundreds of family members of the sailors who went down with the ship who had been informed by the government of the loss of their loved ones. Nonetheless, Helen's release of classified information was treated seriously by the British government, who initially seemed to have some difficulties deciding what to charge her with. They originally charged Helen under a violation of the Vagrancy Act of 1824, which was a relatively minor offense, but then authorities decided to up the ante and charge her under Section 4 of the Witchcraft Act of 1735, a law that was still on the books. Section 4 of the Act covered fraudulent spiritual activity, which was triable by jury. Helen was charged under the Act along with Ernest and Elizabeth Horner, who operated a spiritual center in Portsmouth, and Helen's agent, Francis Brown. There were seven counts in total against them, two of conspiracy under the Witchcraft Act, two of obtaining money under false pretenses, and three of public mischief. Whereas the prosecutors didn't believe for an instant that she was receiving psychic messages from the great beyond, but wherever Helen was getting her information from, they wanted it to stop before she revealed any more classified info or continued to exploit any more bereaved individuals. Helen's trial for witchcraft was a media sensation. The trial took place during the winter of 1944. Many mediums and other members of the spiritualist community rushed to Helen's defense. It wasn't so much that everyone believed her to be the real deal, so much as they were afraid that once the government successfully prosecuted her for witchcraft, it would open the floodgates to even more witch trials. Among those who balked at the idea of the trial was none other than Winston Churchill, who publicly declared the trial to be a massive waste of time and resources in war-torn London. Some people who testified at Helen's trial did give testimony asserting that her psychic powers were real. 
A woman named Kathleen McNeil testified that the spirit of her sister, who had died on the operating table only a few hours before the seance, appeared to her, even though Helen couldn't possibly have known that she was dead at the time. McNeil also claimed that on a separate occasion the spirit of her father popped out of a spirit cabinet, looking exactly as he did when he was alive. A pair of journalists and true believers named H. Swaffer and J.W. Harries also testified in Helen's defense. Swaffer told the court that the ectoplasm Helen produced was 100% real and could not have been regurgitated by her. Harries told the court that no less than the spirit of Sherlock Holmes creator Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a devoted spiritualist believer himself, had appeared to him during one of Helen's seances. But despite this testimony, the photographic evidence alone, with its obvious streams of cheesecloth spewing from Helen's mouth and pictures of the doll-headed spirit Peggy, were more than enough to convince the jury that Helen was a fraud. The defense made a last-ditch effort to save Helen by offering to put her on the stand and give a demonstration of her psychic abilities. The judge and jury deliberated whether they actually wanted to see such a demonstration, but ultimately declined. It took the jury only 25 minutes to return a verdict. They found all four defendants guilty of conspiracy to disregard the Witchcraft Act of 1735. They were discharged from rendering any verdict for the other counts. The judge sentenced Helen to nine months in prison. Helen was led away from the courtroom in tears. Among the other defendants, Helen's agent, Frances Brown, was given four months, since she already had a criminal record for shoplifting. The homers were given a small fine and placed on probation. Members of the spiritualist movement called for the government to change the witchcraft law to prevent other prosecutions in the future. Upon her release from prison on September 22, 1944, Helen Duncan announced that she was retiring from the seance business. In 1951, the government finally repealed the Witchcraft Act and replaced it with the Fraudulent Mediums Act which wasn't at all what the spiritualist community had been hoping for. In 1956, police raided a seance being conducted in Nottingham. They were surprised to discover that the psychic running the seance was Helen Duncan. Almost immediately after Helen's latest arrest, she fell ill. She died five weeks later. The official cause of death was listed as a combination of diabetes and heart failure although some people within the spiritualist community were quick to suggest that Helen was the victim of a conspiracy and that the police had murdered her by interrupting her while she was in a trance. Even today, some people in the spiritualist community see Helen as something of a martyr for their cause and a victim of public intolerance. In 2009, a heavy metal band named Seventh Son recorded a song about Helen in her trial titled The Last Witch in England. In 2010, BBC Radio aired an audio play called The Last Witch Trial about the naval investigation into Helen Duncan. Today, many descendants and supporters of Helen Duncan continue to campaign the British government to posthumously pardon Helen of witchcraft charges. Petitions for a pardon have been rejected on three separate occasions. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to take a moment to promote a fun new podcast that I recommend. Hi. 
Hi, I'm Ali and this is Rob. Howdy. And we're the hosts of Horror Never Sleeps, a new weekly horror movie retrospective podcast. We will be reviewing your favourite scary movies like Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween and Psycho. Also, we'll be covering classic gems like Maniac Cop, The Lost Boys. The Human Centipede. Whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, no. Oh, we'll see. First episode will be released mid-November. You can listen on iTunes or your favourite podcast app. Until then, stay scared. Ooh. We won't be doing that. I also wanted to mention that if you're interested in helping support my show, I have a Patreon account and that supporters can get all sorts of goodies like stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and access to our Patreon-exclusive minisodes. Another way you can help support the show is by subscribing and giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I really appreciate all your feedback, and it helps our standing on the Apple charts. I also have to issue a minor correction on a previous episode. A fan from Australia named Nani pointed out that in my Halloween minisode about the Flying Dutchman, I mentioned the Bass Strait and actually said it was in the wrong place on the globe. The Bass Strait is actually located between Melbourne and Tasmania. Thanks, Nani, for catching me on that. If you have any suggestions for improvements or comments you'd like to leave, you can always reach us on the Conspirators Facebook page. We're also available by email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. We're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Thanks again for tuning in and keeping me honest. I hope you'll join me again soon.